All right, everybody. If you have a Bible, you could open up to Nehemiah chapter 2, or you can read along on the screen, whichever you prefer. So if you weren't here last week, we began a series going through the book of Nehemiah. And if you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, it's not surprising what the theme is around. And it's on rebuilding our lives, rebuilding really in our cities, and at times even in our churches. Because we really all are always in a state of growth, a state of change. And we mentioned last week, and just want to bring it to our attention, for all of us in here of, of all ages, especially maybe in some extent even people who are younger in the room, some of our elementary students, to just be aware of this. We live in a world that is, is really, really focused on tearing down and on that big word we talked about last time, deconstructing. I even saw a, a tweet this week, which is always a great place to go and get yourself frustrated, where somebody recommended a person I used to actually love to respect and listen to and said, if you want to have peace in your life, give up rebuilding, give up reconstructing, just tear down everything, deconstruct it, and then just accept it. <laughs> Things are just messed up. And, and all our job is, is just to dismantle. But the way of the kingdom of Jesus is Jesus did come, if you read the Gospels, He did come dismantling and deconstructing all of that religious construct that held people down. But it's not so then that people could just sit around and say, embrace the nothingness. He, he called twelve apostles which He would rebuild the people of God upon the truth that He was the Christ, the King and the Messiah. And it's in the lineage of this great leader, Nehemiah, that he came and that we want to look at as we go through this book. And so we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 2 today and talk again about what it means to be those who commit to the work of following Jesus and rebuilding the hope of the kingdom of God in this world. So let's begin. In the month of Nisan, or Nisan, if you're thinking of cars, or if you're from the south, he's a Nisan. In the 20th years of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Remember last time we saw, he's the cupbearer to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Long live the king. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given, to the to, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the king, keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. 
Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. But then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the kings had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now by your Holy Spirit to bless your word. We pray now not to merely have a time where we entertain the opinions of a man, although those will certainly be mixed in, but we pray for truth. Spirit, take the truth and pierce our hearts. Take the truth of Jesus and set us free. Father, may this not be a checklist in our religious duty sheet today. May you meet with us now, God. We need you. and We ask you, God, to change us. For your glory and by Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know it's summer and many of you don't want to think of school, but one of the things that I always enjoyed at the beginning of a semester when I was in college was I actually enjoyed when we would get all the syllabi, which is, I think, the correct plural for syllabus. And I remember seeing all the books that I had to read and thinking, wow, this is going to be great. I'm actually, I will actually do all this, and because I've paid money, I might actually do it because they'll have some accountability. And I would get out this planner. It's the old school days. I didn't have a cell phone when I started college. I know that would date me for some of you guys. But we had these, these planners. So I got this calendar planner out, and I would take it, and I would write out, okay, if I read this on this day, and this on this day, and this on this day, then like I can get all this done. I won't be stressed. I won't be pulling all these all-nighters like I did last semester. And it was a beautiful thing to behold. I probably saved some of those unless my wife's gone away. The problem was is that in my dorm room, it wasn't that I just had this planner. I actually had this really awesome chair. Now think college-style chair. It probably came from a dumpster or the side of the road. But to me, it was the most comfortable chair in the history of the world. Well, this chair, as beautiful as it was to me, I began to call the chair of good intentions. This was the chair where my, where my syllabus dreams went to die. <laughs> because I guarantee you, I was not in that chair longer than five minutes, and I was asleep. <laughs> and so I had the beautiful plan, I had a beautiful purpose, but I had a really hard time just getting started. It's always been easier for me in a lot of my life to actually create a vision and to create a plan and to create purpose even in my own life and my family and sometimes sadly even in the church than to take that first step. And I, I'm sure some of you at least can, can resonate with me. Even those of you in here who are super disciplined and good at getting things done, you know that sometimes to get it done, it's just the hardest thing to do is that first step. You've got to make that decision. You've got to get it started. Sometimes starting is the hardest part. Sometimes the first step feels like the farthest step. From riding a bike as a kid, it's like you think it's easy. And once you get started and you fail a couple times, it's all right, I can learn this. But to actually sit on that and to trust somebody to hold you and not just let you kill yourself can be the hardest part. 
learning an instrument. I quit learning to play the piano. I wish my parents would have forced me to keep doing it when I was younger. Because I thought I was going to sit down and play a song. And it turns out you don't sit down and play songs. You sit down and go, dun, 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 dun. And you got to do that for a long time. Probably not as long, though, as you think. But it feels like an eternity, especially when your brother's riding a four-wheeler right outside the window having the time of his life. Moving to a new school. We've been talking about this issue of racial reconciliation and not getting bogged down in all of the, the guilt that we, people would want to motivate us with, but just simply taking steps of love to better understand others or have new relationships. Uh, like one person said, it's going to be awkward. But the hardest part is the first part. The first step. Maybe it's in an addiction you or someone you know and love has faced in their life. It's been your safety net. It's been your security. And to step out of that is scary. Maybe it's with an impaired emotion in your life. Maybe it's with a relationship that you know you need to take reconciliation action in. In your home. Maybe even in this church. In your workplace. And you just know it's that first step. It's that first step that's the hardest. Last week we saw how the first thing we need to do for rebuilding our lives, churches, families, selves, cities is to do nothing really well. That's what we talked about. Is we, we, we know the need is there, and so so many of us are, just tell me what to do. We said the first thing to do is to do nothing well. It's just to listen, to lament, and to look up to God. But we can't stop there. Nehemiah doesn't stop there. We have to take action. We have to get started. Because the gospel is the gospel of a God who acts. A God who performs this great work of redemption through a million small steps towards accomplishing one great end. This is the path that God has laid for us in Christ. But rebuilding this work begins with taking the first steps. Some of you in here, that's where you're at. Some of you may have been there for weeks. Some of you may have been there for years. Some of you may have learned to live your life right on the edge of actually doing something of actually taking a risk, of actually putting yourself out there. But it's the only way change is going to happen. The only way change will begin to happen in your life if you by faith take those first steps. So what does that look like in Nehemiah 2? To begin rebuilding, we have to take the first steps of speaking up. This is what we saw in these first eight verses. I'm going to reference these and you can follow along in your Bible that are on the screen for the sake of time. But the first thing we see that Nehemiah did again in speaking up was he waited. So last time we saw we're in the month of Chislev and this week we're in the month of Nisan or Nisan. What has happened here that we see is a period of four months has taken place. So Nehemiah didn't just do nothing well for a day. Oh, I'm going to listen for a day, lament for a day, and look up to God for a day. No, four months. We're, we're people who like to rush things, right? Nehemiah has, if you remember last time, he has prayed, he has fasted, he has wept, he has cried out to God, and he's did it here for a period of four months before there was any real opportunity to act. And it's so now that it's time to take that first step, he's not taking that first step rashly. He's taking that first step out of a heart that's been humbled before God. But we also see that Nehemiah, though, is living in a way that is with integrity towards what he feels and thus demands an explanation. So we see he's sharing as the cupbearer. Nehemiah's saying it wasn't, now I had not been sad in his presence. What he's saying is this wasn't normally how I was. Remember, the cupbearer to the king is supposed to be the guy that keeps the king feeling good. His wine glass doesn't get empty. He makes sure the party goes on. Nobody wants Debbie Downer to be their cupbearer. So he's been sad, and 
Really, he's risking his life by actually feeling what he feels in the presence of someone else. Because the king could have just said, off with Debbie Downer's head. I've got lots of other people who would be happy to have your job, Nehemiah. So in speaking up, Nehemiah is risking his life. But he's respectful. Notice, after he was afraid, verse 3 says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. The phrase we're more familiar with may be long live the king. So Nehemiah is wanting the king to make sure that he's saying, I'm upset, king, but it's not because I... I'm upset at you. Now, some of this may have been him protecting himself, but we know the issue wasn't now Nehemiah is just so weighed down with grief and he's going to just go around disrespecting everybody. I feel bad and everybody else needs to feel bad. No, he's respectfully real. Those are two things we have to tie together. How can I be real and how can I be respectful? How can I be honest? And at the same time, how can I be humble? Also in verse 4 we see this beautiful part where he's just prayerfully present. Notice the king said to him, what are you wanting? So he can tell Nehemiah here is not just wanting to, to let everybody know how he feels. But he's, he's wanting to take action. This is so, so amazing, this little parenthetical phrase that is anything but parenthetical. So I pray to the God of heaven. So we saw last time, Nehemiah is, is doing this private prayer time regularly in his life. But he doesn't just pray in private, he prays along the way. And this is a beautiful picture. Some of us in here are really good at praying along the way. Others of us in here are really good at praying by ourselves. But the way of the kingdom is to bring these together. Is we have this dedicated time alone with God, where we're pouring out our hearts to Him, but then we go into the stuff of everyday life and we're in this constant conversation with God. This is what it means to pray without ceasing. Not that you're walking around with your eyes closed running into trees or into desk at work. It's that when you face conversations and situations with people, you're always having sort of this two-way conversation where you're listening to them, you're listening to the Spirit, you're appealing to them, you're appealing to God. God is with you always. And especially when we come to these key opportunities in our life, whether it's an opportunity that we're having to have a serious conversation with someone. Someone is asking us a question that we were not ready to deal with. Or maybe an opportunity to share the gospel. Is we go into that and we can pray in the moment. Nehemiah here, there's no, there's no clue in the text that Nehemiah said, wait a minute Artaxerxes, that's a big question. Time out. I need to come over here and pray for a little while. That's not what's happening. Nehemiah is living attuned to the presence of God in his life. And speaking up, he's also action-oriented. We see this also in verses 5 and 6. As he speaks very clearly to what the problem is. And he speaks very clearly to what he feels God has called him to do. His homeland lies in ruins. The city of God, Jerusalem. And he prays, to God that the king would grant him the ability to go there and rebuild this city. And the king says yes. So in verses 7 and 8, we see Nehemiah going from bold to what almost seems ridiculous. If you didn't notice that, so first he's already stuck his neck out to just be able to leave this position that's very important to the king. And now he has the audacity and faith to ask the king to provide all the resources needed to accomplish God's will. I mean, this is amazing. We see here he, he asked that he would supply all of the wood from his forest. We see in these verses that he asked the king that he would supply all of the authorization that he needs to go. He even throws in... And throw in some wood for my own house I'm going to build. Nehemiah makes this big God ask. 
Because he has a big faith and a big conviction that this is what God has called him to do. And he knows that this call of God upon his life is not something that he has felt simply because he had a good chicken sandwich earlier that day, but because he knows it's in line with the promises of God, that God would restore his city, that he would gather his scattered people back to his place, and that one day he would send a king from that people who would bring a blessing to all the nations. Nehemiah is living in that story, and so he can ask big things, even of pagan kings, because he knows the promises of God. But the first step, that first small step towards this type of change, toward this type of rebuilding in the story of Nehemiah and in all of our stories is we've got to speak up and say the truth about what reality is. This is very important. I've never been to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I know some people that have, and I've watched enough TV, and you probably have to know. How do, you, how, do they, how do you participate in that meeting? Who can tell me? What's the first thing you say? That's weird to make people answer from out. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jonathan, and I'm an alcoholic. Jonathan's not an alcoholic. Hi, my name is Rusty. And I'm an alcoholic. Now, I, I wanted to research a little bit why. I thought I understood why, but I, but I found some more information. Part of this is, is you, is you begin that first step with just, I'm going to say this out loud. And if y'all want to debate the origins and gospel-centeredness of all that later, we can. But that's not what I'm talking about, so hang with me here. Is you just got to say the truth. Hi, I'm, my name is Rusty, and this is my reality. You don't change in your life until you can say, this is where I am. This is where we are. This is my reality. As I researched this, someone said it was about anonymity. At first I thought they meant about being anonymous, but that's not what it meant. Like anonymous as in I don't want nobody to really know who I am. No, the reason that you say my name is Jacob, I'm an alcoholic, is because we tend to want to qualify whatever our problem is. Said it's a way for members to say that when they are meeting with the group, it doesn't matter who they are, where they came from, or what they do for a living. In the meeting, everyone is just a plain old alcoholic. You're not, hi, I'm Rusty, I'm a movie star alcoholic. Or I'm a pastor alcoholic. Or I'm a politician alcoholic. Or I'm a punk rock alcoholic. This is who I am. With no qualifier. He said, so everyone is equal and there to stay sober and help others get sober. And the only perspective that matters is that we reach this goal of change. We use this term liturgy where we recite and repeat things so that they become embedded into how we think about the world. It's, it's a liturgy within that world. It's essential for change to say it out loud. And this is our first step for change too. You got to say it. I don't know where the area in your life is that you really want to change. The Holy Spirit knows and He wants to show you that. He tells us to pray in Psalm 139, Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. In Hebrews 4, it tells us that the Spirit takes the Word of God and pierces down not only into our actions, but into our intentions and our motivations. And as we ask the Spirit to reveal those things in our lives, whether through our own hearts or through other people, we've got to take ownership for that. And taking ownership, I really believe, means you've got to say it. You know what I mean? When you say something out loud, it just is like it becomes more real. Well, now that I say it out loud, it sounds different. Now that I've put it out there before myself, before God, before others especially, it's a big first step. And some of you, no doubt, are afraid to do that. A little sidebar here. There's, we talk a lot about being transparent and vulnerable in our church with these type of things. There is a big difference between transparency and vulnerability. At least how I'm going to define them. Transparency is when you share enough about yourself or your situation 
that people kind of know, but you don't really share anything that involves any risk. Some of you are sharing, showing up to your fight clubs, no doubt, or in your missional communities, and when it's time to share, you're giving people like this much of this much of a problem. You're saying, oh, well, it's, it's okay, but it's not, it's not really that bad. Like there's no vulnerability, there's no risk involved. There's no this much truth that now I have to take ownership of and now I'm going to have to really deal with. We guard ourselves. We protect ourselves. Nehemiah here is putting his neck out by speaking out about this. It's not just about problems in our own heart, but problems in our world. There are some things if you speak out and say, this is a problem, other people are going to judge you. Other people are going to label you and categorize you. And certainly we'll see this happens with Nehemiah. But we can say the truth about who we are better than any random person in an Alcoholics Anonymous class and better than any random person in this world because we have the security of who we are in Jesus. The reality is, is that if you are in Christ, you are walking around with this big banner of I am a child of God over your life that nothing anyone else thinks about you, says about you, or whatever they do with your vulnerable disclosure of this is my reality, they cannot take away. We've got to learn to speak up. And that's a big first step. But you'll never change if you continue to hide. Nehemiah shows us how he does this here. Again, not robot, not rashly, but prayerfully, not robotically, but passionately, not cowardly, but sacrificially, not rebelliously, but respectfully, not independently, but present with God, not indirectly, but clearly. And he does it again with that big God ask. Some of us aren't saying and speaking up about what the issues are in our lives and in our homes and in our world because deep down we don't think God can really provide. Could he really set someone free of meth addiction? Could he really set me free from looking at this pornography? Could he really set me free from my addiction to online shopping? Could he really set me free from my desire that other people always approve of me? Could he really set me free from the, the grief and anxiety I feel just scrolling through social media and comparing my life to other people? All of these things have grips on our hearts, but we've got to save them and own them before a God who gives us all that we need to change. So many people have just accepted, this is my life and there's nothing that can change about it. The story of God tells us different. It tells us to start. Don't get overwhelmed. Just start by speaking up in faith. I'm going to say this. A next, to begin rebuilding, at least from this pattern of Nehemiah 2, is not only must we speak up, we have to step up. So we, we say it faith. God sends us on our way and, and now we got to go. Again, it's scary. we got to start. Nehemiah starts. Notice verse 9. Nehemiah steps up by boldly doing the ordinary. Alright, you're getting ready for fireworks. Here they come. First step on Nehemiah's dynamic journey of rebuilding the city. And what does he do? He came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. All right, that's, that's not going to be the climax in any movie. But this is what it starts to have real change in our lives. Is you've got to be willing to do the boring stuff. Again, I, I say this often. We've we got a lot of people who want to change the world, but nobody who wants to change the laundry. But it's the people who change the laundry who change the world. Nehemiah boldly does the ordinary details, presents letters. Nehemiah is not the visionary type of person or the visionary type of leader who says, I'm not a details person. I just like to have the big ideas and then 
Maybe somebody else could do all the work. I like to sit in front of a, a whiteboard or a presentation and with cool graphics, but just present a new one and a new one and a new one. Nehemiah also wisely brings back up. So verse, the end of verse 9, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Nehemiah is not so proud to think, I don't need help. Now it's interesting if you read in the book of Ezra, when Ezra came to the city to begin rebuilding the temple, we see that he didn't want any backup as a sign of faith. But we see Nehemiah here does want backup, and it's out of wisdom. So, so it's different, right? We act in faith. We act in wisdom. But Nehemiah is not too proud to live this copy-and-paste spirituality. Now, that's how many of us live. Well, if they did it that way, I guess I have to do it that way. But God's not... Nehemiah wasn't called to live Ezra's story. Nehemiah was called to be faithful to God in the path that God had called him to walk. So Nehemiah steps up by getting started in the ordinary boring stuff. But he also steps up by facing opposition to reclaim what is God's. And we see these characters introduced here. And I'm going to add the one that's in verse 19. These, these guys are going to come up again and again in this book. We've got Sanballat, the Horonite. Spare you a lot of background. Basically, this dude is a governor in Samaria, which is north of Israel. So he's kind of a leader in the area. He has some power and influence. And then we come to Tobiah the Ammonite. What's interesting about the Ammonite servant, Tobiah is a Jewish name. So in some way, Tobiah must have some connections with the people of Israel, and yet his identity is an Ammonite. So likely he's been assimilated into the, the Ammonite culture, has went in league with Sanballat, and they are exercising some degree of, of, again, political influence and power in this area. And then we get to verse 19, we're going to see Geshem, uh, the, the Arab, who history tells us, and if you're into that stuff, there's a lot of neat stuff about Elephantine papyri that back up the existence of these guys. Really interesting, but I'll spare you all that. But he led these Arabian tribes, and basically Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem kind of controlled all of the areas around Israel and had been really just doing what they wanted and had likely been the ones that led in the destruction of the walls and the burning of the gates. So these guys are not happy that somebody's come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They're messing with their power. They're messing with their influence. They're messing with their control. And the enemies of God do not like it when we come against them. When we have the courage to just even... Nehemiah's not done anything yet. But he has the courage and the faith to take that first step. And you better be ready, if you don't already know it, I know most of you know it, that when you take that first step to bring change and rebuilding in your life, the enemy's going to be waiting there for you. It's not going to be easy. If you decide, I'm going to get up at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning to be in the Word, you go for it. And I hope you wake up smelling bacon and coffee, and it's easy for you, but it might not be. If you're a morning person, it might be, but there's going to be something else that's going to come against you later that day when you try to live that out. Nehemiah is not a person who just has visions and ideas and plans and is willing to speak up and talk about them. He steps up. He dares to do it. That first big step. As I thought about this, I, I thought about Rosa Parks. Many of you know her, but if you don't, I thought, what could a single black lady in the Deep South do to make a difference in something so huge as the Civil Rights Movement? What she did is she really got it started in many ways or contributed to it starting because she got on a, a bus where black people, African Americans, were forced to sit on the back and she sat at the front. And if that wasn't rough enough, when a white man came and told her to get up and go to the back of the bus, she refused to give him her seat. 
This is bold stuff. But if you think about it, it's, it's bold, but all she did was just sit on a seat. But what, what, what could she do? She could take a, a first step. A bold first step, but a very ordinary thing. And her actions inspired leaders to begin the Montgomery bus boycott led by a young Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It lasted a year and she not coincidentally lost her job during that year. And it ended only when the United States Supreme Court ruled that bus segregations were unconstitutional. Now, nobody may ever know your name. It may not be on a stamp. But God has some big, ordinary first steps for you to take. And they're going to cost you something. You're going to find yourself in a battle. Really a battle you're already in, but maybe the enemy's just numbed you to its reality or caused you to accept it and just numb yourself to the fight. But you've got to take those first steps if you want to change. You've got to be willing to do the boring stuff. I, I, don't, I do not want to sound crass or co confrontational in saying this, but if somebody comes to me and says, my life is in shambles or my marriage is in shambles, and I usually don't say this, but I do sometimes. I want to, because I'm, I'm, I need to do this. It's like, how's your, how's your regular daily time in the Word of God in prayer? Oh, I don't do that. How, why would you bring that up? My life's in such a mess. Are you, are you, are you, have you been faithful in the fellowship of your local church? What, what do your intimate relationships with other believers look like? Well, that's the boring stuff. Reading my Bible and praying every day, having a, a, an abiding relationship, a participatory communion with Christ, that's the boring stuff. Just deliver me. Be a, be a part of that small group, what we call fight clubs here, do that. Man, my, my life's already so busy. Can't you just fix me and fix my marriage? I wish I could. The reality is, is that God has changed, designed that we would be changed by living a life in His presence. That His power isn't like a gas station fuel pump or an ATM machine that whenever we're running low, we just go fill up and then go on about our lives. We've got to step up, and when it begins by those small steps, just doing that. And I don't say that to guilt, fear, or shame anyone in this room. I say that as someone who's with you in that struggle. Sometimes the smallest things are the hardest things. But the good news is Jesus went to the cross for us as one who lived some near 30 years in total obscurity. I don't think it's unintentional that we don't have those 30 years in our Bibles. Jesus, all those years, did all that stuff that we'll never know about in faithfulness to the Father. He did all those little things. And sometimes we forget that when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't just His sort of going to the cross that saved us. It wasn't just His death that saved us. It was His life that saved us too. It was the fact that He was perfect in every way that he never failed in any of the small things that we all fail in a million times. And then when he went to the cross, this is why he was that acceptable sacrifice for our sins, because he was the perfect spotless Lamb of God. This is why when we hear this call to do these small things, we're not being called to say, oh no, now I feel more guilty to read the Bible, more guilty to pray, more guilty to participate. No, it's so that we're encouraged to know that we don't have to act out of guilt, but we can be motivated by grace. Grace to try again. 
Some of you have tried the small things. And you just, the enemy was waiting and you weren't ready. It's time to try again, not in your own power, but in the power of the risen Christ. It's time to go into it knowing that the enemies are there, whether real people like these guys or the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's time to fight. Sadly, many Christians and churches pose no real threat to the enemy beyond Sunday attendance. And if you don't realize it, Satan is totally cool with us sitting here listening to me talk and then going out and doing your own thing every day. We've got to go. And the last thing here, quickly, is not only must we speak up and step up, but we've got to really show up. In verses 11 through 20, this is what we see Nehemiah does. The first thing he does as he comes into the city is, again, this shocker, he rests for three days. It says he rested for three days in verse 11. He knows that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And any person or, or group that really is interested in change has got to realize there's no silver bullets, there's no quick fixes. This is a life. It's like Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. It's not this walk down to the altar and, and, and I touch you and now you walk out and there's no more fighting, you know, just complete victory. If the Spirit wants to do that, do that. He certainly can. But that's not the normal thing that we see in the Scriptures. It means rest. You're... There's a difference between rest and numbing yourself. Then we all need to learn that, especially me. He rests. He replenishes himself for the work. He, verse 12, he trusts a few people. So even though he's not yet gone public, he has a few guys that he invites into the process. Verses 13 through 15, he inspects the walls. He inspects the city. He wants to see the details for himself on, on the back of an animal. Up close and personal. He's not just rushing in, this out-of-towner who now has all the answers. He rests. He's likely praying. He's trusting a few. He's inspecting it from the ground. Then he includes the people in verses 16 and 17. But he leads as one of the people. He doesn't say, this is your problem. He says, this is our problem. And no matter where you go in the world, whether you're from there or not, if you're ministering with brothers and sisters in Christ, you are them. And then he inspires them in verses 17 through 20. He clarifies the circumstantial needs at hand. He makes it a need for we, not just thee. He touches their heart with the deeper issue of their derision or their disgrace. He then gives in verse 18 tangible evidence to the favor of God that is behind them through the king. And then in verse 19, he publicly faces the enemy. They mock them. And then they do what all great enemies like to do. Not just mock, but accuse them of having false motives. Sometimes we miss them when we miss the work of the enemy. But what the enemy wants to do is to make you be confused about your motives so that you are paralyzed in introspection and don't take action. Now as we've already said, the Spirit leads us to address our motives. That's where He wants to go. But what the enemy wants us to do and what he always does is take the work of the Spirit and twist it. The enemy is the king of half-truths. That's where he traffics. He's an angel of light. You don't have the angel here in the white robe, and the devil here with the red pitchfork in the tail. Wouldn't it be nice if it was that clear? So how do we know the difference? It's when the enemy accuses us, it leads us into despair and death. When the Spirit convicts us, it leads us to the cross. It leads us to Jesus. He leads us to Jesus. He leads us in that confidence. He leads us to action. To bold proclamations like Nehemiah says here in verse 20. This is the work of the Lord. And you have no authority here. 
What would it look like for you to say that to the enemy and not feel like you've gone a little crazy? This is the work of the Lord. And you have no authority here. I'm bringing change in my life through the power of the Spirit. I'm bringing change in my family. And I'm not going to let you lead me into this inner spiral of anxiety and depression and fear and guilt and shame. I'm going to listen to the Spirit. If you're a history buff, you may know the story of Cortez burning his ships. Now, I did a little... In, uh, his, I always want to do fact checks on stuff because you can do that now. So supposedly he didn't burn his ships. He, he might scuttled them, which meant he dismantled them. So for any fact checkers out there, I know the difference. We're going to go with a burn one right now. All right? Dismantle works too. Just not as good. If you don't know this story, in 1519, Herman Cortez arrived in the New World with 600 men, and upon arrival, he made history by destroying his ships. So imagine you pull up on shore, and hearing all your men walking on the shore, and your leader says, destroy the ships. Why? There's no going back. no going back. He sent a clear message to his men, there is no turning back. And even if it's the dismantled version and not the burning version, can you imagine why you're being attacked by your enemies trying to reassemble your ships? Guess what? I think some of us can imagine that. Because that's how we're living our lives. We're trying to fight here while we're saying, maybe I just need to go back to the old way that was easier. Back to that control idol. Back to that approval idol. Back to that comfort idol. At least it helped me live. At least it got me through life this far. If we're going to change, we not only speak up, we not only step up, we've got to really show up. And show up means we're cutting ties. So many of us have these safety nets in our sanctification. If God doesn't come through here, I've at least still got this. And so we try to live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world and then we wonder why nothing really changes in our lives. Some of us need to fully cut ties with some sinful patterns and the circumstances that allow them. Some of us need to fully cut ties with tribal allegiances beyond the kingdom of Christ. Some of us need to crucify the old narrative of our glory and success in life. Some of us, we need to crucify our escape plan. Well, I could always divorce. Well, I could always cause this division and I could just kind of ease out. Like Nehemiah, and even more so like Christ, we need to slow down. We need to invite a few people in deep with us. We need to see up close the problems in our hearts and our homes for ourselves. We need to include as many people as possible in this project. In great humility. And then we need to be inspired. And some of you may, you may need to be the one who inspires in your heart and in your home. Like Nehemiah, you need to call out the obvious problems with resonating clarity. Where you, where your family, where your friends, your, your missional community, your fight club, wherever it is, your workplace, where they're like, you get it. You see the problem. And then you need to say, I'm in it with you. It's not your problem. It's our problem because we're family in Christ. If they're not a believer yet, you need to say, we, we're both image bearers of God. And I'm going to be with you until you come to Christ. We need to touch the heart. We don't need to just stay on the level of behavior modification. We need to say, this is the heart of the issue. This is about idolatry. This is about wounds from your past. But we're going deep. And then you need to do what Nehemiah does and what Jesus leads us to do is you need to point them to a hope that's bigger than themselves. You've got to say, I've got something to back this up with and it's more than my enthusiasm. It's more than my flash in the pan feelings. It is the God of all creation who loves you, who sent His Son Jesus to die so that you would be set free, not so you would live the rest of your life in bondage to that sin and suffering that has held you. Because when Jesus went to the cross 
He went to defeat sin. He went to defeat suffering. He went to defeat Satan. And he doesn't want his children to say, well, one day when Jesus returns, I can actually have some measure of joy in my life. I can have some measure of victory. Yes, we will struggle all our lives in this battle. But we're not called to live as defeated little children. And we are the men and women who have been made sons of the kingdom of Christ. It's time to get started. To take those first steps for the first time or again for the hundredth time. As we take these first steps, I'm reminded of Teddy Roosevelt. And this has been used quite a bit. Thank you guys for your patience and listening a little longer. He said this against cynics who looked down at men who were trying. He said, the poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. He said, a cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness which will not accept contact with life's realities, all of these are not a mark of superiority but weakness. And then he used this paragraph, which many of you probably heard. He said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. Or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man, and I'll add, or woman, who is actually in the arena. Whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Who strives valiantly. Who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls, souls who, nigh, who neither know victory nor defeat. Nehemiah leading to Jesus is trying to lead us in a life where we don't at the end know neither victory or defeat, but who spend ourselves in following the one who has already given us the victory. But to do so, we must begin by speaking up, stepping up, and showing up. Father, we thank you for the good news that is ours in Jesus, that he came for us, that he showed up incarnated, that he lived the life we could never live, that he died the death we deserve to die, and that he rose to give us the victory we could never pull off in our own power. As we come now to the table, we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of his finished work so that we might go forward in the power of the Spirit. Amen.